All right, good morning again. If you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to open up to the Gospel of John, chapter 11. Uh, as we approach Easter Sunday, we are going to put a pause on our series through 1 Corinthians and look at some of the resurrection stories that we see in Scripture. When we think of the resurrection, we rightly think of Jesus. But there are several stories throughout the Gospels and throughout all of Scripture that speak of the resurrection. Those who have died and who have been miraculously brought back to life. And this morning, we're going to look at one of my favorites in John chapter 11. It's a well-known story, the story of Lazarus. And there is a lot for us that we could see here in this passage this morning. You could probably preach through it three Sundays in a row and have new themes and ideas within the scriptures that we could pull out. But this morning, we're going to look at this main idea through this passage, that eternal life is given to those who believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Eternal life is given to those who believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, and that alone. No other work, no other secret code or handshake, the belief in Jesus being the resurrection and the life alone. So what we're going to look through at this passage, what we're going to learn in this passage this morning, is that Jesus is purposeful, that Jesus is clear, Jesus is clear in who he is and what he's come to do, Jesus is compassionate, and this is one of the most wonderful things that we see in this story, it's the compassion of Jesus, but then also that Jesus is willing and notice, uh, I chose this careful because at first I had it as Jesus is able. But not only is Jesus able, not only does Jesus have the power to do it, Jesus is willing to do it. And so we're going to see that as we read this passage this morning. If you have your Bibles with you, we're going to look through John uh, 11, verses 1, all the way down to verse 44. If you don't have your Bible with you, it will be on the screen. It's a lot here, but it's a wonderful story. It will have no problem keeping our minds engaged. I'll read for us. It says this. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then his disciples said to his disciples, Let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews were trying to stone you, and yet you are going back? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. 
So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in their loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. After this, after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and he's asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who also opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor, for he's been there for four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Man, what a powerful story. What a hopeful story. Jesus being the resurrection and the life. Now, there are a few things that I want to point out to us here this morning uh, that I think that we need to wrestle with. The first one is this, 
Jesus is purposeful. We notice at the very opening of this passage that the sisters sent word to Jesus that the one that he loved is sick. And why did they send word to Jesus? Because they knew he could heal them, him. They knew that if Jesus was there, he could heal Lazarus. And this is the tension that we hold, that we hold what we confess. The sisters confess that he can raise Lazarus, but what they experience is the death of Lazarus. And they seem to go in disorder. I mean, they, they go, they cause disillusionment. I can imagine the sisters waiting, waiting for Jesus. The scripture says where Jesus was and where Lazarus was, it's less than two miles. Jesus could have walked there in probably 30 minutes at a good pace. He could have been there very quickly. If he would have run, he could have been there in what, 15 minutes? And who wouldn't? Who would not run if you hear that one of your best friends, someone closest to you, is in sick, dire condition, and they need your help? They need you. We would immediately take off and go there, would we not? But we see here that Jesus delays. And not only does he delay, he waits for two more days. Can you imagine Martha and Mary and Lazarus? Can you imagine them often looking over their shoulder, just knowing that at any moment Jesus is coming over the horizon, this will all be fixed, Lazarus will be better, and we can go back to our lives. But they wait, and they wait, and then Lazarus dies, and then four days goes on, and Jesus still hasn't shown up. But we see here this odd, miraculous thing that Jesus is purposeful. He's purposeful in his delay. Notice what Jesus says here, what it says here in verse 5. It says, Jesus, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard Lazarus was sick, he waited two more days. Do you see the connection? Because Jesus loved Lazarus, because Jesus loved Martha and Mary, it is exactly why he stayed. Jesus' love compelled him to stay in that moment because Jesus is purposeful in what he is doing. And we see this purposeful delay because the sickness will not end in death, but God's glory will be revealed through the Son. Now, it's tempting for us to jump to application here or just want to know how this might correspond or correlate with our lives. Maybe we are going through sickness or maybe we're going through pain or maybe we're going through a marriage, trouble or strife. And so we pray to the Lord who has all things in his control, deliver me from this, do this. And we might wonder, is the Lord delaying here? Why is the Lord delaying here? Why has he not fixed my marriage? Why has he not fixed my health? And these are all questions that can come from this text, but it's not time for us to answer them yet. Let's finish the passage, and then we'll come back to those. The next thing that we need to see is that Jesus is very clear in who he is. When Jesus arrives, he tells Martha this. He says that I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus is clear so that his disciples and those around him may believe. 
Now it can be tough for us 2,000 years later who want to follow this man, Jesus, who we believe is the Son of God. And there are those that will say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Jesus never claimed to be Lord. But here we see that he is, that Jesus is claiming very clearly that he is not only the resurrection, he is also the life. Everything flows through Jesus. He is clear in who he is. And notice, this is just a little aside that I thought was neat as uh, I was studying the passage this week. In verse 12, where he tells his disciples that our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. And then the disciples don't get it, and Jesus very plainly tells them that he's dead. This is very interesting. Uh, The Greek word for cemetery is komaterion. And komaterion literally means sleeping place. So as Christians, why is it that we go and bury our loved ones at a cemetery and not a graveyard? Why is it that we call it a cemetery and not a graveyard? It's because we believe, as those who are in Christ Jesus, is that they are only asleep, and that coming on the last day, he will raise those who are in Christ Jesus from their sleep. When we go to a cemetery, we are professing, even in the name cemetery, that this is only a sleeping place. This is not the final resting place. That Jesus is Lord, and that here we are standing on resurrection soil. So what is it that Jesus is wanting to do so that the disciples may believe? He's wanting them to see that he is the resurrection and the life. And this is what Martha somewhat confesses. We see in verse 24, Martha says, I know Lazarus, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. What Martha confesses is most likely what she has heard over and over again through Jesus' ministry. If you flip over to John 6, I'll have it on the screen here, where Jesus has professed power over this last day. He says, and this is The will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Next we see, uh, next passage down in, in verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. Next. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Four times in John 6, we see Jesus having the authority over the last day. And this is a theme that we see throughout Scripture on this last day. And it's also what we see as widely held belief in first century Judaism. We have this evidence from the Old Testament, New Testament, uh, writers like Josephus and Philo, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls. The predominant belief was this, that those who died would be resurrected, those who died would be bodily resurrected, uh, and they would either go to eternal life or eternal death. And there was one exception, commonly held belief by the Sadducees, a Jewish sect, who did not believe in the resurrection. So here's what Martha is confessing. She is confessing what has been commonly held thought in first century Judaism, but she's also confessing what Christ himself has said. 
that on the last day, he will raise them from the dead. But Martha knows only part of the truth. Here's what Jesus continues to say. Not only that he's going to raise them on the last day, he doesn't claim the power to resurrect. He claims that he is the resurrection. Jesus is clear that he is the resurrection. This is not an abstract promise. For those of you who believe in Christ Jesus, for those of you who have lost family members who have died in the name of Christ Jesus, the hope of the resurrection is not an abstract promise. It's not just a figure of the imagination. It is rooted in the person of Jesus Christ. It is held in the authority of Jesus Christ. The resurrection is secure in the person of Jesus Christ. As surely as he lived, died, and rose again, is as surely as you will live and walk into life with Christ Jesus if you are his. The resurrection is as sure as Jesus Christ. Jesus is not only the resurrection, Jesus is clear that he is the life. Jesus is the source of life itself. Because he is the source of life, he is the only way to eternal life. You cannot have life outside of any other source except the pure one in Jesus. And historically, this has been the Christian confession. The Christian faith seeks to convert people. And this has bothered many people. And the question goes similar to something like, why can't you just look at people with your Christian faith and love them as they are and not seek to convert them? Why must you seek to change people? Why can't you just look on them with love and peace? Why do you have to persuade? And the answer is this, because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. As believers in Christ Jesus, we believe, we confess that the one way to the Father is through the Son in Jesus. And if you're outside of his goodness and grace, if you're outside of faith, if you're outside of believing in him in the resurrection and the life, you will not see the Father. Can you imagine what Paul says in 1 Corinthians about the resurrection? If you remember, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth and he says that, when Jesus rose from the dead, that he appeared to more than 500 people at the same time. Isn't that incredible? To show them the bodily resurrection of who he is. Now, can you imagine being one of those people and just like, ah, I don't need to tell anybody about that. Like, it changed your life. You saw the resurrected Messiah, the one who claimed to be God, now living. You're not going to leave that experience unchanged. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Jesus is clear that he, belief in him, is the only way to eternal life. You can, you can, listen to me, you can believe that there's a better place. You can believe one day all things will get better. You can believe that there is a God. You can believe about the man Jesus. But if you don't believe that this man Jesus is the resurrection and the life and that he has come to save you, you have not been saved. You can believe all these things about God. You can believe about a better place. But unless you confess Jesus as Lord, you are not saved. The core element of Christian faith is to believe that Jesus is the Son of God in whom is the resurrection and life. The resurrection is as certain as the person and work of Jesus.
even though they die, if they believe in Jesus, they will live. It's true, Lazarus has just died. We've had loved ones that have died. But even though they died, even though they have passed from this earth in death, we know because we believe in Christ Jesus that they will live again. And this is the beauty of the gospel. The beauty of the gospel is this, is that I walk from life to life. See what I'm saying? I walk from this life into eternal life with Jesus. There is going to be a period of time, or so it will seem, that my body, my physical breath is not here, and that I'm dead in a, in a grave. But the hope, the beauty of the gospel, is that once I pass from this earth, I walk directly into life with Jesus. When I was a kid, uh, probably like eight, nine, ten years old, uh, I would try my hardest. Uh, every night, that, uh, every Saturday night, I'd try my hardest to stay up and watch all the way through an LSU football game with my dad. But inevitably, I would fall asleep on the couch. Now, you know the miraculous thing is that in the morning, without any knowledge or recollection of how I got there, not any remembrance of me falling asleep, just knowing that I have woken up. In the morning, you know where I'd find myself? Safely in my bed. Upstairs, in my room, lights off, safely in my bed. Do you know how I got there? By the loving arms of my father, who carried me safely to my bed. In the same way, the Christian who falls asleep is carried by the loving arms of their father into eternal life with him. That is the hope and beauty of the gospel. Jesus is clear, Jesus is purposeful, but we also see another wonderfully beautiful thing about the story is that Jesus is compassionate. Now, we esteem the story of two sisters, uh, Martha and Mary. And if you'll notice, uh, there are some similarities and some differences. One comes out to Jesus, one stays in the house. But do you notice, both tell Jesus the exact same thing. If you would have been here, my brother would not have died. And they both have two responses to their grief. Martha says, she responds by saying, I know that God will give you anything that you ask. So Martha has rehearsed in her mind this almost like preaching the gospel to herself. If you would have been here, my brother would not have died, but I know, but I know I hold fast to that God will give you anything that you ask. This is Martha's confession. Now we see Mary, and we might see her in like more of a, a different negative light, but I don't think we should. Notice what Mary does. She comes to Jesus, and she says, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died, but where is Mary at? At his feet, in worship. She is at his feet in humble submission to Christ Jesus. And what does Jesus do? Jesus weeps. Jesus could have looked at her and said, well, if you would have just had faith like your sister. <laughs> Jesus doesn't scold her. Jesus doesn't say, why'd you stay in the house? Jesus doesn't say, well, you just need to believe. You just need to have more faith. No, what does Jesus do? He weeps. He's deeply moved. 
Jesus, in his compassion, meets Mary exactly where she's at. And this is reminiscent of the prophecy in Isaiah of what the Messiah will be like. I think it's in Isaiah 40, uh, 40 verse 3, 53, verse 4. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. Here's what this means for us. All you have to do with the compassionate Lord is to come to him. You, you might be bewildered in the state of your life, in, in sickness or in whatever other trouble that you have. Why has this happened? All you need to do is come to the Lord. And you can come to him by rehearsing the gospel, confessing what it is that you believe, or you can just come to him at his feet in tears. He will meet you where you are at. The Lord Jesus is compassionate. Now we have this phrase in the translation here where it says, Jesus was deeply moved. He was troubled in his spirit. And the Greek word here is embrimaome, and I did have to rehearse that several times. It's embrimaome, and it has several different meanings. It could mean deeply moved uh, in application to like an animal that would be like a bull snorting or charging. It could mean to warn sternly, to admonish urgently, and this word, embrimaome, is only used, I think, four or six times. I have a couple of references here. Uh, we see it in Matthew 9.30, where we have it translated here in John 11 that he was deeply moved. They translate it here, and their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. Or Mark 1.43, and Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once. Mark 14, 5. For this, this is the disciples that are getting on to Mary. For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. Next, we see these two. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit. So we see with all of the uses of this word that there is this tension here. There's like this, this little bit of anger, uh, this little bit of uh, troubled. Um, it, yeah, it even says that he's troubled. There's this little bit of, I uh, just got to do something sort of feeling. So what does it mean? Does, does it mean that Jesus scolded them for not having their faith, that Jesus was angry at them for weeping? No, we see Jesus Weeping himself. This is an emotionally compassionate response that has a little bit of edge to it. Like somebody uh, who is crying through their anger. Who's been really just angry or really hurt and grief. And just all, the only response you have is tears to come out. But what is Jesus angry at? Is he angry at the people? No. Jesus is angry at death. It's what happened to his friend Lazarus. And so it says that he was deeply moved and he was troubled and that this deeply moved and troubled, that it leads him to the tomb of Lazarus where he says, move the stone away. And Martha says, Lord, by this time there's a bad odor for he's been there for four days. Now remember what Martha just confessed. Martha just confessed, whatever you ask from God, he will do for you. But now she's telling him to stop. There's a bad odor. 
grief does this to us. Grief has a way of, of making us confess what we believe and hold fast to what we are true, but then also have this expectation of, like, there's no way this can work out. And here Jesus comes in and reminds her, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? What we see here is lastly, is that Jesus is not only compassionate, he's not only clear, he's not only purposeful, but Jesus is willing. Jesus shows us that the heart of God is to move towards us in our time of trouble, not away, but towards us. And so Jesus goes to the grave, goes to the tomb with a loud voice. Well, first he prays, thanking the Lord that they are about to witness what he has allowed him to do. And so Jesus, with a loud voice, says, Lazarus, come out. I heard it said, I thought this was a neat perspective put on this, that the reason that Jesus said, Lazarus, come out, instead of just saying, come out, is because if he would have only said, come out, every grave with an earshot would have opened up. Jesus is the resurrection. He is the life. And he moves towards us in his compassion, and he's willing. And this is the story of the gospel. Romans 10, 13 says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, what? will be saved. Not might be, not could be, not it's possible, not if you do these things. Call on the name of the Lord and you what? Will be saved. Jesus will move towards you. Why? Because he's willing. He delights in doing it. We see in Ephesians that we were in a similar state as Lazarus says this in Ephesians 2.4, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ Jesus even when we were dead in our transgressions and sins. If you are outside of this belief in Christ Jesus that he is the resurrection and life, you are just as Lazarus is, dead in your sins and transgressions. But if you come to the Lord in faith, he will call you out. And he will call you by name. The gospel is for you. And then Daniel 9.18. This is, God, this is one of my favorite prayers in scripture. It says this. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. This is how we come to the Lord. Not with anything in our hands to bring, simply to the hope and the cross of Jesus do we cling. Not only is Christ able, he is the resurrection, he is the life, he's willing. Hebrews 12 says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy Set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. One of the most difficult things at times for us to believe is that Jesus died for you joyfully. That Jesus sees you in, in all of your sin and all of your shame, everything that you've done, 
in your life, and even at times when we even hate ourselves, we even hate our sin, we, we just think how worthless I am. You know what Jesus says? Mine. Jesus looks at us with compassion. For all of those who are in Christ Jesus, the Father looks at us with all of the favor and love and joy as he looks on Christ. His, our life is now hidden with Christ on high. So, what does this mean? What does this mean for us? How should we walk away from a passage like this? Going back to our earlier question, what does it mean for us that Jesus delayed? We can often look at what can appear to be the fruitlessness of prayer. And so we're like, why is my situation not changing? Why are my circumstances not changing? Why is my marriage in the state that it's in? My health, my situation, whatever it is. Is the Lord delaying like Mary and Martha? And let me just say that these are really difficult questions. And they're really difficult questions to wrestle with. When considering our deepest heartfelt prayers before the Lord, we want him to move in our current situation. It seems like he does it. We need to remember a few things. We need to remember a few things. The first one is this. God does not create evil to work his purpose. God is not the author of evil. God is not creating an evil situation. God is not ordaining this evil situation so that he can get you or anything like that. All things that are bad or evil or vile do not have the last say. God is not the author of evil. However, God has authority over life and death. God is not creating evil to work his purpose. People can abuse these scriptures by even um, justifying their abuse or justifying their neglect to say, well, you just need to know that this is uh, good for you because the Lord has obviously ordained that. No, the Lord does not create evil to work his purposes. The second is this, and this is hard, um, but let's just take it. Christianity is not the removal of suffering in the present, but the hope of grace to endure suffering until the end. Hope does not mean doing nothing. It is the opposite of our desperate or panic manipulations of scurrying and worrying. Hoping is not dreaming. It's not trying to spin an illusion or fantasy to protect us from boredom or pain, hope is the confident, alert expectation that God will do what he said he will do. And what has God said? That he is the resurrection and the life. I can move through this life with all suffering and pain by the grace of God until the end, knowing that he is making all things new. And I think one of the reasons that this can be so difficult for us to understand, and we want, we want to kind of shift this question to our present moment and circumstance, is because we forget about the second coming. We forget that Jesus is coming again, and he's going to make all things new. I mean, consider this in light of what we've been studying in 1 Corinthians. Paul is framing all of this in light of the day of the Lord when he comes to make all things new. 
And so we, in, we can endure our suffering by the grace given to us because we know and hold confidently to that Jesus is making all things new. And then lastly, uh, with this part, consider the saints that have gone before us. Consider the saints that have gone before us and have endured persecution, who have endured not just persecution but death, not just death but horrific death. And they do so with joy. Uh, my mom shared me, uh, with me this story. Uh, I forget who it was by, but uh, here I'll just read it for you. For centuries... Anchors have been a symbol of hope. The emblem was especially significant to the early persecuted church. Many etchings of anchors have been discovered in the catacombs of Rome, where Christians held their meetings in hiding. They were threatened with death because of their faith. And these committed Christians used the anchor as a disguised cross, as a marker to hide their way to their secret meetings. Located beneath the ancient city, 600 miles of these tomb-like burial chambers served as a place of refuge during perilous times of persecution. Thus, the anchor, found even on some tombstones today, has become the guaranteed hope for eternal security of those who are in Christ Jesus. Consider uh, the hymn, one of my favorites. Christ the solid rock, my anchor holds within the veil. My anchor holds within the work and life of Christ Jesus. We can get into strange ground thinking that God ordains or causes abuse or that he causes or is the instrument of injustice or sin. God is not causing your marriage to suffer. God is not causing your body to suffer. God is not the agent behind sin. But we know that all things work together for the good of those who love him in Christ Jesus. Hold fast to his promise. Second, Jesus is clear about what he is, who he is and what he is doing. The gospel is personal. Jesus has died for me. Uh, Jesus was raised for me. Jesus intercedes on my, my behalf. You need to personalize the gospel. See it as salvation for you. Jesus is compassionate, and he is willing to save. How can we walk confidently into death? Is it by believing in an afterlife? Is it by believing in a better place? No. It's by believing that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And we walk, when we walk into death, we're not walking into death. We are walking from life to life. We are walking in the arms of a loving Father who will safely take us by his side. Let's pray together. Jesus, I pray. Um, I pray that your resurrection and the free gift that you give us can become very real for us in the moments of our pain or in the moments of our suffering. Father, in the moments of temptation. Father, I pray that the hope of the resurrection and your second coming we read this morning that one day you'll wipe every tear away from our eyes, that you will be our God and that you will dwell with us. Father, help us to push forward to that day with the grace and hope of the resurrection. Father, let every day for us be like Easter. 
Father, that we celebrate the joy of new life in you, Christ Jesus. Father, when we are met with grief and pain, Father, I pray that you come to us gently with compassion. Father, if there's anyone here this morning who is not called on your name, Father, I pray that you call them to yourself. Father, I pray that they step in faith to call on the name of you, Christ Jesus. It's in your name we pray all of these things. Amen.